Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Mike Volkov brings 35 years of legal experience. Matt Kelly is the founder and editor of Radical Compliance. Jay Rosen is Mr. Monitor who knows his way around the culture of compliance. And Jonathan Armstrong, a partner at Cordery Compliance in London, rounds out this top group of compliance practitioners. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Tom Fox. On this episode of Everything Compliance, we have the full quintet with us. Mike Volkoff, Jay Rosen, Matt Kelly, Jonathan Armstrong, and Jonathan Marks. We take up the Herbalife settlement from a variety of angles. Jay Rosen considers the result where Herbalife did not have to sustain a monitor and considers it in context of the Benchkowski memo. Jonathan Marks looks at this from the internal audit angle. Matt Kelly considers the role of the board of directors and also uh, opines on internal audit. Jonathan Armstrong looks at it from the UK angle and brings up a Scottish case around bribery and corruption under the UK Bribery Act. Mike Volkoff talks about what he would do if he got a call from a company similarly situated to Herbalife at the start of this case. Jonathan Armstrong, sitting across the pond, if you were presented with a similar fact scenario to the Herbalife case and were beginning to help a client understand the situation they were in, uh, what, how would you counsel them and where would you take it? Yeah, Tom. So I think in some respects, the, uh, it's really interesting that it's China because, of course, traditionally, China has been a very difficult place to do investigations. We can look at GSK, for example, and the uh, imprisonment of people there. But in some respects, it is easy to do some types of investigations, and particularly those that relate to things like gifts and hospitality. So were I asked to look at this from the start, I think I'd initially want to get much more data. And in some respects, that's possible in China through the Fapiao system, the way in which uh, gifts and hospitality records can be matched against uh, central government sources to do that analysis, just to challenge the numbers. And of course, due diligence is possible into uh, uh, Chinese officials, particularly those involved in uh, TV stations, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think as well as the red flags that you guys have talked about, there's also the issue around direct sales in China. You know, we know, for example, the challenges that Avon have had over the years, the fact that direct sales were banned in China and then allowed back under terms. So all of that, I think, from a UK point of view, would be ringing alarm bells with me. And of course, we're not concerned as much as you are in the US about that blurring between public and private officials. So the UK legislation would uh, come into play, even if everybody involved uh, who was receiving hospitality, for example, was private and had no connections to government. So I think from my perspective, obviously, you'd want to uh, challenge the receipts. You'd have hoped that they'd have been picked up at a much earlier stage, and you'd hope that the board would be more uh, involved as well. And um, I I wondered if it was helpful just to talk about a couple of Scottish cases, partly because we don't talk about Scottish cases that much, but partly because I think both of them are perhaps relevant. So so avid listeners will remember that under the Bribery Act, we have uh, the failure to prevent provisions in Section 7. So an organization has to prove that it uh, put in place adequate measures to try and prevent bribery. And in some respects, this uh, uh, was introduced in the 2010 Act to try and make it easier to prosecute cases like this. And we have had a couple, uh, as I've said, in Scotland that are perhaps illustrative. We had the Brand uh, Rex case in 2015, which involved the very, uh, uh, what's it, the very attractive world of um, 
of cabling in Glenrothes in Scotland. And here the case involved uh, effectively a corruption of an incentive scheme where those close to the organization were rewarded under a scheme called brand breaks for pushing product. And they worked out a good way of pushing product was to split the prize with the buyer. That's obviously a bribe, even if you're giving the opportunity for a holiday, for example, and the uh, and Brand Rex, when they found out about it, went to government and got a civil settlement as a result. The other case is in freight and logistics, and I have personal knowledge of a number of bribery schemes in freight and logistics. It's a sector that has uh, traditionally been at the cutting edge of bad behavior, let's say. And I've often found it surprising how unattractive some of the hospitality on offer is. You know, for example, I uh, came across a case where the allegation involved a week in a caravan in the north of England. Uh, and part of you thinks, you know, when you're looking at hospitality bribery schemes, you immediately think of F, uh, you know, Formula One and trips to the Singapore Grand Prix, trips to the Monte Carlo Grand Prix. And it's somewhat sad to be involved in cases involving a, a caravan in a coastal resort on the uh, northeast coast of England. But, uh, but, but Braid um, was a case where I think the hospitality was more glamorous than that. But what's perhaps interesting uh, as, as a message in the Herbalife case is this was another case where the organization went to government. They settled for £2.2 million for the corrupt hospitality scheme there. Again, it was a Section 7 prosecution. But the interesting bit of the case to me was the subsequent civil action. It was said that one member of the board knew of this bribery scheme. It was called something different. And uh, other uh, shareholders decided that they didn't want him on the board anymore. And he had substantial shareholding. Shareholdings worth some 20 million sterling. And the other shareholders used a civil action consequent on the settlement of the bribery claim to force him to sell his shareholding for 2.4 million. So the director who knew of the scheme was impacted directly in his pocket, not by a criminal action, which may or may not pursue in the Herbalife scheme, but by an action against fellow shareholders against him to punish him for his involvement. So I think it's clear from my perspective that there are a number of really interesting lessons in this case. And I think it will be interesting to see, uh, you know, if it, uh, as would initially appear to be the case, some of the board knew directly about what was going on here and either didn't ask the right questions or weren't assiduous enough in following through the answers that they got, whether there will be a personal detriment uh, to, to them along the lines of the of the Braid case up in Scotland. Well, Jonathan, uh, if I could maybe ask you to, uh, how would you approach a board of directors? Our, Matt Kelly may have some thoughts on the board's role here in the U.S., but it seems to me that boards in the United Kingdom, I don't want to say are more circumspect, but perhaps a step back and more hands-offish. Would that be a fair assessment? I'm not sure, to be honest. I think in quite a few of the cases that I've been involved with, I've, I've won at the moment, where the board have absolutely stepped up to the plate. It's a case where there are allegations made uh, against executives within the business. And in the case I'm involved with, the senior non-executive director, um, who, who's technically, I guess, our client, is is working on this you know, more or less full-time, despite being paid for substantially less than uh, full-time work. So I think there has been a sea change in the UK. I think the Bribery Act was possibly part of that because we saw, as I say, these failure to prevent provisions. We saw a lot of education, particularly to non-exec directors at the time. Uh, I have found, I think, boards 
more willing to get engaged and ask the right questions. And equally, I've seen a number of shareholders use their um, presence on boards to ask tough questions as well. We did an exercise, for example, when the Bribery Act came in for uh, a client of ours who had sometimes majority, sometimes minority stake in about 50 entities. And they used their position on boards in those 50 entities to ensure that the board had a specific discussion about bribery risk. And we, you know, we structured uh, that um, way of raising the topic and some helpful things that they could look for. And, and they used their presence in those companies to enforce and document uh, the right right processes and procedures. So my suspicion is that in the UK, boards are getting more and more involved in compliance and specifically in bribery and specifically in um, data privacy issues because you know both of those issues can have a substantial effect on revenue of the business. Is it is it is this change because people are all together? feeling that they have to get on board with compliance because it's the right thing to do? Or is it a factor of how much lack of compliance affects share price? I don't know the answer to that. The cynic would say it's the latter. It's just they're looking at impairment of the value of the business rather than necessarily doing the right thing. But I'm sure that there are, there are many directors who are using their position to increase the role of compliance at board level for the right reasons, not just because they're looking at their own options or their own shares or the value of the corporation. Matt Kelly, you have written about this and you and I were uh, able to do a podcast on it, but what really struck you as the two or three key elements in this case? I was most intrigued by the details in the SEC's settlement order uh, about how internal audit at Herbalife was at at a high level at first glance on the surface it looked like internal audit and the audit committee of herbalife's board were doing everything right and then when you peel back the onion they were not doing anything right um so i'm just shocked at how much you can have the window dressing in place and still have terrible corporate governance in practice and in substance um, so, for example, I'll just walk through this again. One of the uh, big issues with the SEC's order was the fraudulent spending by one Mary Yang, who was the director of external affairs for Herbalife China. And she is now under personal indictment, I think, out of the District of New York for her FCPA misconduct and those charges against her. Um, but Okay, senior executive in China has to get government licenses. We all know that person is going to be a high risk. And of course, we're all taking a risk-based approach. So internal audit at Herbalife, like they did that. They zeroed right in on her expenses um, and they performed an audit on her travel, entertainment and meals expenses in 2012. They looked at her expenses for the first half of the year, which were way out of proportion to anything that would be normal, where she was racking up, um, I think it was 239 meals expensed over the course of 184 days, which if you do the math, means that she was eating out one meal every day, every single day, twice on weekends for six months, uh, where on average, uh, she was racking up $3,200 per meal, uh, with 17 other guests per meal. So they were all spending $180 per person per meal every day, twice on the weekends. And the audit department had all of that. And the audit department, of course, because they are best practices, they answered right into the audit committee, which got these internal audit reports. So, okay, so far, everything on the surface looks great. And then nothing, no further action. I especially liked when Herbalife's internal audit team did a second audit of Mary Yang's expenses, which were just about as egregious and clearly false as the first, um, because 
then it, that second internal audit went right to the board, uh, to the audit committee, where the audit committee members were talking with each other. And the SEC order has that email, and I can quote you from it. Uh, one audit board member said, please note, I've questioned this every year, and I've been on the board, and the company has defended its position that these are reasonable within FCPA guidelines. And uh, then apparently the internal audit director replied to the audit committee that uh, these findings are, quote, typical issues in these audits and are within tolerance, close quote. So – Yet again, we have all of this surface dressing of great reporting relationships, and we're clearly focused on the big risks. And then they actually dig up incriminating information and very serious red flags. Um, and it goes to the audit committee, and then there's no follow-up. Uh, they ask the right questions, but don't seem to care what the answers are. Um, and I, I keep on thinking of the court decision out of Delaware – that we saw, I think it was late last year or maybe early this year, but against Bluebell uh, Creamery's board, where they had a listeria outbreak, but the board of Bluebell never really kept a close eye on food risks when it was a food company. Um, so the Delaware court ruled that, uh, no, the directors were not uh, fulfilling their oversight duties because they were just sitting around waiting to be spoon fed, uh, no pun intended, um, this information about food risks at Bluebell. Well, here we have, inter we have the audit committee sitting around waiting to be spoon fed information about FCPA risks, and they were spoon fed some very alarming information, and then they took no action. Um, and that went on for far too long. And finally, uh, Herbalife's uh, internal uh, FCPA issues blew up into the mess that it is. Uh, it's just it is a glaring cautionary tale about the need for board members, particularly on the audit committee, to take their duties seriously. And when the, the internal audit function gives you alarming information, you have to act on it. And if the audit people then say, well, it's just within tolerance, then you're supposed to come back and say the tolerance sounds pretty wacky. This is, should not be the way it is. Um, anybody who did you know, some simple math on Mary Yang's expenses could have seen there's some serious trouble there. And uh, nobody apparently did or nobody cared. Um, but it, that, that is what stood out to me about Herbalife um, more than anything else was that glaring negligence at the audit committee level that just let this go on for far too long. Matt, you started off talking about the internal audit function and how they actually performed an internal audit. And when you got to the board level, it really wasn't clear to me if you thought the internal audit function uh, should have done something different or it really turned over to the board's responsibility. Do you have a, a feel or a sense of how the internal audit function within the organization held up? Well, uh, you know, I would be very curious to know um, what responsibility the internal audit team had for poor oversight, poor – there was no action taken up. So I'm hesitant to say the internal audit didn't do their job because they did do their job. Uh, they audited Mary Yang's expenses. They found all sorts of red flags. They put it into a report. They gave it to the audit committee. But where I get a really sort of just astonished is when the audit committee pushed back on that and said, this seems unusual. And then the audit director said, no, this is within tolerance. This is normal for these kind of issues. Um, that was not normal for those kind of issues. That was a gigantic abnormality for FCPA issues and travel and expense uh, spending. Um, it should not have been tolerable. Uh, it should not have been within any tolerance. But in that case, the board, the audit committee should have told the internal audit director, no, this is not within our tolerance. Our tolerance should be more strict. And therefore, let's get into what is really going on with Mary Yang. And um, the, all of that conversation should have been happening in 2015, 2016, potentially even earlier, because I suspect these audits were done earlier. The uh, SEC order only talks about two it done in 2014 and 15. But I something tells me this has been a long running problem. Um, but if the audit, the internal audit team finds all these red flags and then says, well, you know, everything's a red flag around here. So it's not any big deal. This is typical. This is normal. 
It is the audit committee's job to then come back and say, no, no, when a red flag is actually red, we're going to address it, not just say red is a pretty color and then move on, because that seems to be what the audit committee had been doing. Jonathan Armstrong, do you have a question for Matt? Yeah, I I was just wondering, I mean, no public uh, corporation could survive now without a member of the board with financial skills and expertise. Are we coming to the day when public corporations should have somebody with compliance skills and expertise on the board? So we have somebody with a compliance background, a former chief compliance officer, for example, on the board of every public entity. Uh, You know, Jonathan, from your lips to God's ears, or I suppose maybe to the SEC and to Congress's ears, uh, because I think that would be an excellent idea. I think that the risks that companies face from compliance failures are significant enough that somebody on the board needs to be much more cognizant of them. Um, The law currently says you need a financial expert. That could be a CFO or a corporate controller. They're not that versed in regulatory compliance issues, but this kind of stuff can be a big deal, and you need someone on the board who can address that. So, Jonathan Marks, I have heard you talk about and seen you write about a lot of the issues that came up from this case and have been discussed in this podcast. And frankly, I suspect you're about to go subnuclear. You're so agitated about this. So what has agitated you the most? I mean, everyone, Jonathan and Matt certainly brought up, you know, phenomenal points and made awesome comments. I guess as I read through this and watched everybody comment on it, you know, a couple different things. Um, one is, and I've been saying this for years, in, especially in the United States, until the SEC makes the chief audit executive and the chief compliance officer leaving the company an 8K event, then it's going to be a problem. The chief audit executive needs to have enough gravitas and a lot and enough leverage to challenge a lot of these things without being threatened by their jobs. And if they are threatened by their jobs, much like the lawyers. Um, who have a noisy withdrawal provision, the chief audit executive and the chief compliance officer need those same things. So that's the first thing. The second thing here is skepticism is just completely and totally out the window. Um, when you talk about boards asking questions, you know, I think they ask the questions, but they don't follow up appropriately. I think sometimes they're afraid to follow up. You know, if you look at the average structure of a board in the United States, I think the average age is over 68 years old. I'm not so sure, and no deference to any of these people, that they have the the skills and capabilities to understand not only the risks that are being faced today, but also the compliance aspects of things. Um, You know, as we dig deeper, I know uh, Matt or Jonathan mentioned Bluebell Dairies, uh, you know, uh, Bluebell. You know, I think that's a testament to the fact that, you know, the board – needs to um they need to be well designed with the right skill sets on there and they need to make sure that they're monitoring appropriately and you know going above and beyond you know and challenging senior management with regards to not only risks but also you know uh the controls that are in place and whether in fact that they are uh functioning appropriately you know most people think policies and procedures good policies and procedures ensure you have good internal controls. I'm telling you right now, that's a myth. Um, it's the control environment that really matters. Um, and then I guess the, the bigger question is the one that you asked me, Tom, uh, you asked me, Tom, which was who will guard the guards themselves? You know, quay custod, epos custodis, so to speak. You know, who's, who's accountable at the, at the board level for making sure that they're doing the right things? Um, or the other board members of the other committees are doing the right things. Um, you know, it's it's always interesting to see boards self-assess themselves. I, I just think that there needs to be a fundamental change. And if there's not a fundamental change, I think you're going to see more things like Herbalife. Um, I think in my experience, I've seen audit reports go to audit committees and fall on deaf ears or somebody try to rationalize why something could be normal. Um when it comes to management override, again, I think that goes back to the board. I think the board's responsible. Um, you know, any organization that has well-designed uh, 
controls that are, that are effective and, and are in pl- or otherwise effective, you know, has the opportunity for those controls to be overridden. I did a study or participated in a study with Carol Bishop, Dana Hermanson, and Dr. Richard Riley on management override of internal controls. And, you know, a couple of things that we learned from that is that we don't know if the audit committee is effective or not. with sort of inconclusive data, but, you know, management override leaders are generally older, more educated, and higher in a higher position um, with shorter tenures within companies. That's one of the things that we learned. Another thing that we learned were schemes are more complex um, uh, and, and, and it takes a it takes a different mind's eye to to really start to peel these things away. You know, like like Matt said, you know, it's almost the Potemkin village. You know, you have the facade of a great internal audit department that's focusing on the right things. But, you know, once those issues, you know, burble their way up to the audit committee and hopefully the board, you know, it's really incumbent upon them to act. And if they're not acting, then, you know, basically control failure all over the place. Um so, you know, I did go nuclear when I read this, you know, I, I'm saying to my, I'm sitting here saying to myself, well, these are, you know, this is not, <clears throat> this is not out of the ordinary, but again, you know, like you said, Tom, you know, who will guard the guards themselves and, you know, or is it the Fox watching the Fox guarding the hen house, you know, any saying that you would like to have here, but it, it appears to me, if you did root cause here, I think the fundamental thing would be. Um, the lack of skepticism at the board level and their inability to actually dig down and ask the right questions or follow up on things or, you know, ask senior management to prove to them that things are operating effectively. So, Jonathan, both Matt and I have written and talked about <coughs> audit function in this case. Do you, do you have an opinion or at least a sense perhaps of whether internal audit did their job and it fell apart at the board, or do you see something different than we've seen? Uh, you know, I, I don't know whether I haven't seen all of the documentation as to how the audits were designed, the procedures they performed, or read the read their report. Um, I will tell you that the IIA did a study not too long ago, and um, what they uncovered was is that a lot of the reports that were written on on very very sensitive issues were changed or the wording was manipulated and more so in the far east than in the united states so you know it's it's really interesting to me i would love to see draft number one of that report and then draft number nine of that report and and look at the differences and what how it was presented to the how it was presented to the audit committee and the board um so whether they did their job or not i'm not sure um you know, it appears that again, you're, you're look you're on on the surface looks like they're focused on the right risks and things of that nature. Um, you know, I also call in the question the fact that you know I haven't seen the board minutes either. You know, if there are audit committee made, minutes that you know that's something that's looked at by the external auditors. You know, if the external auditors saw a preponderance or a pattern of somebody questioning the fact whether these things re- related to Herbalife were reasonable or not. I, I don't know. To me, I, that would sort of send off or a, a bell, or, you know, ring a bell in my head or a red flag in my head, and I, I would follow up. Um, not saying it's their responsibility, but I would definitely follow up and challenge management, you know, on, on some of those things or change my audit procedures in order to make sure that things were appropriate. But that's just me. So I don't know that I can answer your question, Tom. I can only tell you that I think I have the same opinions that the two of you have. That it, it appears that internal audit, you know, did what they were supposed to do, but you know. If they did what they were supposed to do, I would love to see, you know, draft one and then look at draft nine or 19 or 37 and how that was presented to the board, because I think that's really critical. Um, you know, and I don't really know much about the chief audit executive there. And uh, and again, um, it, it's it's I, I think I, I think it just the level of skepticism in this thing, it just seems to be non-existent. So Jay Rosen, and for our listeners at home, Jay is dressed as Captain America today. <laughs> so with uh, with that, uh, lots of things going on in this case beyond sort of the technical aspects we've talked about so far. Were there any that really uh, caught your eye or struck you, Jay? Thanks, Tom. Well, I wouldn't be Mr. Monitor if my eyebrows were not raised when looking at all that it happened to the company that no monitor has been assigned to this. So uh, I thought I'd take a look into the DPA and take a look into some of the signals we've gotten from the current administration as to why this had happened. 
so according to the DPA, the company did not self-disclose. And even with the lack of self-disclosure, the company still received, quote, full credit, unquote, for its cooperation with the independent investigation. This cooperation included making regular factual presentations to the United States and after taking steps that the company and its affiliates determined complied with the applicable foreign data privacy, confidentiality, and discovery laws, they voluntarily made uh, employees available for interviews. Next, the company engaged in extensive remediation, including taking disciplinary actions against and separating from employees involved in misconduct, enhancing its anti-corruption compliance program by, among other things, significantly increasing the personnel and resources devoted to compliance and bolstering the company's annual risk assessment process. Under the FCPA corporate enforcement policy, if a company did not voluntarily disclose its misconduct to the Department of Justice in accordance with the standards set forth above, but later fully cooperated and timely and appropriately remediated in accordance with the standards set forth, the company will receive or the department shall recommend to a sentencing court up to a 25% reduction. So even though they didn't self-disclose, they got credit. Uh, also of note in the settlement is the lack of the monitor. Once again, one can only state that Herbalife's Defense Council did a superior job in convicting and convincing the DOJ that a monitor was not needed for the company to complete its compliance program obligations under the DPA. The criteria for a monitorship has been set forth in the Ben Sikowski memo, and there are two broad criteria that the government looks at. One, the potential benefits that employing a monitor may have for the company and public, and two, the cost of a monitor and its impact on operations of a corporation. These two criteria are to be further evaluated by the following. Whether the underlying misconduct involved manipulation of books or records or exploitation of an inadequate compliance program, whether the misconducted issue was pervasive across the business, whether the corporation had made significant investments in and improvements to its corporate compliance program and internal controls, and whether remedial improvements to the compliance program and internal controls have been tested. Additional considerations included whether the changes in the corporate culture or leadership are adequate to safeguard against a recurrence of misconduct, whether adequate remedial measures were taken to address problem behavior by employees, management, or third parties, and in assessing the adequacy of a business organization's remediation efforts and the effectiveness and resources of its compliance program, criminal division attorneys should consider unique risks and compliance challenges the company faces, including particular regions or industries in which the company operates. So now taking a look finally at <clears throat> how did the company get such a great result? A serious matter requires a serious legal response. And when the company is in a series of FCPA issues, a serious legal response is required. In this case, it meant bringing on one of the top FCPA defense practitioners around, doing an extensive investigation, engaging in extraordinary remediation during the pendency of the investigation, and then negotiating a superior settlement. What does this portend for FCPA enforcement going forward? If there was ever a case which seemed appropriate for a corporate monitorship, it was this one. The bribery scheme was in play for at least 10 years, as we've recounted from 2006 to 2016, and the recalcitrant China business unit executives were with the company until 2017. The company did not even have a CCO, yet no monitor was required. There was no real analysis in the DPA that we can find as to how the company avoided monitorship. So perhaps it was the superior negotiating. There are now real incentives for companies to take advantage of these discounts and incentives that the government is offering. Obviously, the first step forward is to self-disclose, but even if that's not an option, then to extensively cooperate, extensively investigate, and extensively re remediate. While others may decry it, there appears to be a greater emphasis by the Combined Department of Justice and Securities and Exchange Commission for cooperation after either self-disclosure or subpoena from the government. 
And all this would seem to follow the direction that the DAOJ has been headed since the implementation of the FCPA pilot program in 2016, through the FCPA corporate enforcement policy and updates in 2017, and the evaluation of corporate compliance programs and updates since 2017. So all this, although it's surprising, it really isn't. If we look about the signals that we've been getting from DOJ and SEC for over the past three to four years, this outcome seems consistent with the uh, with the clues that they're giving to the market. And I think that uh, when you look at the numbers here, the company really uh, made off in uh, in good shape. Mike Volkoff, what do, what do you do? What does Mike Volkoff do? When the Volkoff Law Group gets a call from a potential client or a client that, hey, we've got this SEC subpoena, what do we do? Well, first thing you do, Tom, is uh, you pray. But uh, and then after that, you I mean, imagine beginning to try to uncover this or unravel this scheme that has tentacles from China and the base of the sort of corrupt activity occurred in China, but it also involves members of the senior management. We had the LA executive who was advising the Chinese head of China on how to evade certain controls. And we also have a board that failed to exercise adequate supervision, in my view, of internal audit. And, uh, and we had no compliance department. I mean, literally no compliance department. So when you walk into a situation like this, how do you, how do you start to unravel this? Well, it's going to be a step-by-step thing. If you come in to me, uh, you start with building your alliance with whoever it is that first contacts you and then ultimately get to the board and to uh, senior management, but mainly to the board to tell them, here's what we need to do in this situation. But, you know, keep in mind that the you've got people, it's kind of like there are little traps along the way where you could hit people who may have exposure in this situation. So you have to build credibility here. And um, I thought, uh, you know, Patrick Stokes from Gibson Dunn, did a terrific job, but I bet you this took you know a long time for him to get the credibility needed to get the buy-in from the company's higher-ups and the board to say, go over there and take no prisoners in China and dig out whatever you need. We're going to support you financially, but we're also going to support you uh, in terms of unraveling this mess. And The problem is they probably didn't understand in the beginning the full scope of this, you know, horrific mess till they came in and started to uh, unravel it. And it just kept getting bigger and bigger. So a lot of times what I see people do is they start, you know, sort of pulling at the thread, the first thread. Don't overwhelm the board. Don't overwhelm senior management. Explain to them the risks here as if we don't do enough and then go from there uh, in terms of pulling the thread and then more and more will come out. Uh, Just one side note, Tom, I mean, I think we've seen an example of a situation you and I are familiar with years ago with Alstom when, remember, DOJ was having trouble getting their subpoenas complied with. And that was because even within house count, I mean, outside counsel in there, they couldn't get the support of the organization to do what they had to do to bring uh, this matter forth. And they had to switch outside counsel at least, I think, two times before they got to that. And they delayed and lost a lot of valuable points in terms of their cooperation. What's amazing, by contrast here, going back to Herbal Life, is First off, they didn't have a compliance monitor put into place, nor, but they did receive full credit for their cooperation. So whatever was done early on, it sort of built momentum and went in at a steady pace and eventually led to the findings that they did in terms of uh, China and the problems in, uh, uh, in China. But 
you know, remember that the problems in China ultimately came back to reflect back on some of the senior management and also the board itself. So, but I think that that part sort of came more at the end. I think you, you, you described quite well what you would have done, the conversations you would have had with the board and senior management, but you also have to deal with the prosecutors. You also have to deal with the Securities and Exchange Commission. What kind of conversation do you have with them? Uh, my feeling with dealing with the prosecutors and most of them, and including the SEC, is you try to be upfront with them uh, and pretty candid about what you're trying to accomplish at the company. Uh, one rule that uh, that I've pretty much followed, and I don't think there's much support for – well, there's some, but not as much from my perspective – is that I um, encourage my clients, when we deal with the government, I like to bring a representative with me. In other words, a general counsel or the chief compliance officer or whoever I want to make a representation about what they plan to do to the government. It's uh, there, uh, But on the other hand, what I've noticed is a lot of law firms, the big law firms, a lot of times don't take anybody in and they like to have their own conversations and then report it back to the client. And I think uh, clients are getting a little more sophisticated and wondering whether they're getting the full picture when a counsel comes back and tells them how the conversation went with the government. So I like to be upfront with the government and I also like to establish a relationship with a representative from the company so that they can look that person in the eye and trust them or not. So for example, when I was a prosecutor, I liked uh, having uh, a representative from the company there and I would ask them and they would look at me and say, okay, I promise you we are going to do this, we're going to do that. And there was somebody to hold accountable as opposed to an outside counsel who you know, can massage a client or whatnot. We've had several cases, uh, Tom, as you know, and you've written a lot about this, where the legal fees were like extraordinary. I mean, just like almost obscene in some cases. And there have been lookbacks that have occurred by uh, various companies to see what, in fact, they got for the dollar. And also, were they getting an accurate picture in terms of the interactions with the uh, Justice Department? And so here, what Whatever you may say about herbal life, uh, you know, this was a, I know it's, it sounds like a lot of money. It's a, you know, harsh settlement, but given what they were looking at and how bad their, I think their, their sort of perception and reputation was with the government, um, I think they came out great here. And that's a tribute to what I think is a relationship that Patrick Stokes, who used to be the head of the FCPA unit, he has instant credibility when he's talking to the people he used to work with in partnership at the SEC or at DOJ. They believe him when he says something. And I think I would be honest and tell them what you're trying to accomplish. And I, they get it. They know what he's trying to do. But uh, going back on that point, on the other hand, if he doesn't deliver, then the government's going to have trouble. So, like, you know, don't make a promise you're going to do something and then come in and try to, you know, walk it back. In other words, be careful about the representations you make. And there's a lot of – look, a lot of it is just basic common sense in terms of dealing in a professional way with people, not turning it into a, a, you know, a battle royale and not getting all stuck. But on the other hand, not just laying over, you know, turning over and letting them do whatever they want. You've got to be professional but also be respectful. Jonathan Armstrong, do you have a rant and or shout out for us? Well, I, I've – I have something that's that's. Uh, I think it's probably a repeat. I think it's probably something we've discussed before, but I think it's worthy of repeat. Of course, it's conference season for a lot of us, and a lot of these conferences this time around are virtual rather than in person. And at the same time, in the compliance profession, we're already seeing compliance teams be reduced. I think the figure from a conference this week is. Uh, resources were down about 25% in compliance teams. And that's obviously likely to result in a lot more people being in transition or leaving organizations. And um, and I, I think that's a lonely place to be, particularly if they're at home without a job. And particularly if it's the conference season when they might ordinarily be having conversations with people in 
hallways and with co- and in coffee rooms that might uh, g them up when they're not in a in a great place. So I guess my shout out is to all of the people who are in that position, and to say, and I think we've said it before, but if anybody is in that position and they want to chat, and they whether they know us or not. Uh, pick up the phone and chat. You're not alone in this. We all realize that it's an isolating time and you don't need to uh, sit at home and suffer in silence. Matt Kelly, do you have a rant and or shout out? I do today, Tom. I have actually a shout out for a woman named Nora Danahy. Uh, For those of you who might not know her or the name only vaguely rings a bell, she is a now former federal prosecutor in the District of Connecticut where she had been an aide to U.S. Attorney John Durham, who is the U.S. Attorney for Connecticut. He is also the one who is heading up uh, that, uh, I will call it a special investigation, um, and I will spit out those words with some uh, very uh, certain degree of sarcasm there. Uh, Durham is heading up that special investigation into the origins of the Russia probe uh, that A.G. William Barr uh, established. Um, basically, Barr is trying to gin up a fishing expedition to see if he can somehow uh, prove that people in the Obama administration were making criminal conduct uh, as they were investigating Donald Trump and his connections to the Russia in 2016 during the presidential election. Now, so far, uh, Dunham has found no criminal conduct of any consequence. I believe one person uh, pleaded to altering an email, which is a federal crime, uh, not altering an email to change the substance of it, to somehow frame the Trump administration. None of that. Like they dug up one guy, moved a period or something in an email, and that technically is a crime. So he copped the plea. But anyways, this is what Durham is doing. Uh, This is I don't know if it's a fish hunt. I don't know if it's a fishing expedition. I don't know if it's a witch hunt. Um, Clearly, Barr and President Trump are hoping that Durham will cook up something out of thin air just before the election to make uh, Joe Biden look guilty of what? Who knows? Anybody think that Donald Trump actually cares? Of course not. He just wants some sort of smear. Anyways, back to Nora Danahy. Nora Danahy was John Durham's top aide, and she's a close connection of his for a long time. And she has resigned her position, not only from uh, that special prosecution investigation unit, whatever you want to call what Durham is doing. Uh, Not only has she resigned from that unit, she has resigned from the Justice Department entirely. And uh, it is apparently because, among other reasons, she objects to what John Dunham has been doing. Um, And she believes that there is nothing there. And maybe there are some other reasons why she also decided to leave the department. That is not clear. But according to the Hartford Current, Nora Danahy resigned, at least in part, because she believes that what John Durham is doing is not legitimate and she wants no part of it. And I want to applaud her for her her integrity right now. Um, Once upon a time, apparently John Durham also had integrity. And maybe I don't know why he decided to take this assignment, which clearly A.G. Barr has just ginned up, but it is nice to see that uh, Nora Danahy is among the numerous federal prosecutors now who see that the Justice Department is getting politicized and she wants nothing to do with it, and they are leaving, and that is a tough thing to do. So thank you to them, Nora Danahy first, but many others who are doing this these days, because that is not easy, but it is a commitment to integrity, and we have to applaud that. Jonathan Marks, do you have a shout out and or rant for us today? I'm going to go rant today. Uh, My rant is against um, or mentioning the Institute of Internal Auditors for their latest um, or attempt to change the three lines of defense model, uh, which is now illustriously called the three lines model. Um, It's it's mind numbing to me that they had compliance professionals involved in this revisit of the model, which, you know, visually is extremely, I think, remiss of not including compliance and legal. And there, I'm almost appalled at the fact that the all with all of the regulatory guidance that has been released, both in the U.S. and abroad, that they snubbed 
compliance and legal with regard to this particular model. I, I believe that there's very few board members that will look at the 16 pages of context that go with the model and will look at this visually and think that internal audit is the answer to everything. And so um, that that's my rant for today. Jay Rosen, do you have a rant and or shout out for us? I'm sure it will be easy to guess which one this is. In remarks delivered September 16th, Bill Barr, the president of the, um, excuse me, the leader of the Justice Department, asserted that he is the one who should make the big calls in cases of national interest. Quote, the notion that line prosecutors should make the final decisions at the Department of Justice is completely crazy, Barr said. Under the law, all prosecutorial power is vested in the attorney general. And these people are agents of the attorney general. As I say to FBI agents, whose agent do you think you are? Now, I don't say this in a pompous way, but this is the chain of authority and the legitimacy of the Department of Justice. So there you have it. Now we can add the concept of a unitary AG alongside that of the unitary president. So for my uh, commentary, I'm going to shout out to my main man, Jose Altuve. Uh, Some have criticized Jose Altuve this year. Let me just go over his last 10 years of batting averages. 276, 290, 283. In 2014, 341. 2015, 313. 2016, 338. 2017, 346. 2018, 316. 2019, dipping to 298. And this year, a robust 215. So for those who claim that Jose Altuve needed to be told what pitches were coming to hit, I point to his 215 and say, see, he's above the Mendoza line. Or all this Chapman, you know, T.S., baby. He could take you downtown today. That is if the Astros are ever in the playoffs again. So back off on my main man, Jose Altuve. Anybody can hit 215. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. We had the full quintet, Mike Volkov, Jonathan Armstrong, Jonathan Marks, Matt Kelly, and Jay Rosen for this podcast. We dedicated this podcast to the Herbal Life Settlement, but if there's a topic you would like the Everything Compliance gang to take up, please leave a message on Stovepipe on the Compliance Podcast Network or send me an email at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Everything Compliance is the only roundtable podcast in compliance. It is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to visiting with you again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.